do gather this morning to exalt our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we've come to the time in our service where we exalt Him through studying His Word. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible provided there for you, it's on page 983. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. We come to the conclusion of our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter this morning. We've seen repeated throughout the book the theme of saved, suffering, and sojourning. And we come to that conclusion this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. If you found your place in God's Word, whether in body or in spirit, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you this morning uh, taking relish in your word. We are so delighted to study your word. And we pray, Lord, that it would uh, comfort our hearts this morning. Revive our hearts, Lord. Help us to love you more faithfully, to leave here being more obedient than when we came in, that we would glorify you in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by just a few opening words about Peter's Closing words. As you look there at verses 12 through 14, uh, you see Peter's conclusion to this letter. These are his closing words, and we're going to look at them first. Verses 12 through 14. Peter has written this letter, and we find out that he's not alone in ministry. He is with Silvanus. Uh, Most people agree that this is Silas by Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you. We see Silas, you might think of him as being with Paul in the book of Acts. You see him in other places in the New Testament, Silvanus being his formal name and Silas being the name that he was uh, probably called more often. But by Silvanus, uh, Peter says, I have written briefly to you. Now I chuckle at that because overall this is a relatively brief letter. It's only five chapters long. That's uh, brief compared to some of Paul's longer uh, New Testament letters. Uh, but this brief letter has taken us four months, and so I don't know if, it's, if it feels very brief to you or not, but Peter says, I've written briefly to you. I could have written more. But here's the sum and the substance of Peter's letter. He says, I've written exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Everything that Peter has written, you could summarize it under that heading, 
that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You can stake your life on Peter's letter. You can stake your life on God's word and you can stand firm upon it. We see that Peter is not alone. He's with Silas, but he's also with the church. Verse 13 says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Now, some people uh, might think that this seems to be referring to a person, to uh, perhaps Peter's wife. But I believe, no, this is referring to a church. Uh, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Uh, We see churches in the New Testament referred to in this way uh, in the feminine there. She who is at Babylon. So now the real question is, is this church literally in a city named Babylon or is this code for Rome? We know that in the book of Revelation, John refers to uh, Rome and he often speaks of it as Babylon. And we know in the Old Testament, there is a literal place called Babylon and it still existed in Peter's day. So which is it? Is he literally in Babylon or is he speaking in code referring to Rome? The answer is, I don't know. But we understand that he is speaking about a church. He is not alone. There are other Christians there with him. And this church sends him greetings. Peter is sending his greetings. He's sending the greetings of the church at Babylon. And he's also sending the greetings of Mark. And he refers to Mark as my son. This is a personal, affectionate way of speaking of the gospel writer Mark. This is the same Mark uh, that we're studying in community Bible study. Uh, John Mark, uh, we know that he traveled with Paul. And uh, they had a falling out. There was a time when Mark was not ready for ministry, but God worked through that. And Mark was reconciled to both Paul and also he's working now with Peter. And as we've studied the book of of Mark, we see that Peter's fingerprints are all over it. There's a great influence in Mark's life by the apostle Peter. And we have testimony to that right here in this verse. He speaks of Mark as his son. Then he concludes by saying, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So he's communicating his greetings. He's telling them to greet one another in the cultural way they would have done that at that time with the kiss of love. We would probably do that more with a handshake or a hug today. But Peter ends the letter on a note of peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. These are Peter's closing words to this letter. But he has one final message for us in verses 6 through 11. There's a wonderful pastor down in Jacksonville, Florida. His name is H.B. Charles Jr. And when he was summarizing 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, The world at its worst needs the church at its best. The world at its worst needs the church at its best. And Peter is writing to believers who are experiencing hostility. They're experiencing persecution. And when they look around them, it seems as if day by day the world is growing worse and worse and worse. I don't know if you resonate with that at all. If that sounds familiar to you at all, maybe it's just me. But the world at its worst needs the church at its best. And so Peter gives us three closing commands, three final reminders of how the church can be at its best. In verses 6 through 7, he commands us to be humble. In verse 8, he commands us to be watchful. And in verses 9 through 11, he commands us to be firm. We're going to see to be watchful, to be humble, and to be firm. We begin in verses 6 through 7, where Peter tells us to be humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He has that word, therefore, and they're reminding us of what we looked at last week, where Peter tells us that humility 
uh, is something we're all to clothe ourselves with. Humility is the true one-size-fits-all piece of clothing for the Christian. We're all to adorn ourselves with humility. You know, you don't uh, accidentally get dressed in the mornings. You have to be intentional about that. And so we're to intentionally clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. Why is that? Well, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We saw that reference last week. We talked about it at that point. But it forms and shapes what Peter says here in verses 6 and 7. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we ought to humble ourselves. Now, we instinctively, we kind of understand what it means uh, to be humble. We know that pride, a prideful person, is someone who thinks more highly of themselves than they ought to. So on the other hand, a humble person is someone who thinks more highly of others. A person who is humble recognizes they view themselves in the right way. They view others around them in the right way. And they view God in the right way. They understand that they themselves are a sinner saved by grace. They have been made holy by God, but it's not because of anything that they have done. It's all because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast in anything save but the cross of Christ my God. So the humble person sees themselves the right way, but they also view others the right way. They view every other person on the face of the earth as someone who's been made in the image of God. And every person we meet falls into one of two categories. They are either saved or they are lost. They are someone who has already received God's grace like they have, or they're someone who needs to receive God's grace, grace as they have. And so the humble person rightly views himself, they rightly view others, and they have a right view of God. They understand who God is, that God is holy. He is pure. He is holy other. He is not just greater than us. He is entirely different than us. He's a different stuff than we are. And so the humble person rightly views themselves and others and God himself. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he has a helpful way of talking about the humble person. He says, don't imagine that if you meet a really humble person, they're just always going to be telling you that they're a nobody. Lewis says, no, probably all that you will think about this person is that he seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you're just a little bit envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. You see, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's the humble person. And that's what God has called us to be. We're to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We ought to humble ourselves before the cross of Christ. Humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Uh, we teach our children a, a catechism, which is just a question and answer format. Christians have been doing this for hundreds of years. One of the early questions in the catechism says, what is God like? And the answer is God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. So why in the world are we talking about the mighty hand of God? If God does not have a body, why do we see all throughout Scripture the finger of God and the hand of God and the feet of God? Well, we understand, again, that because God is completely different than we are, He is high above our way of thinking. He has condescended. He has spoken to us in ways that we can understand. 
So he comes to us in the human language and he speaks to us about himself in ways that we can understand. So God speaks of himself as having a hand and God speaks of himself of having outstretched arm and having a feet, having a finger. And these help us understand about God. We understand when we look at the mighty hand of God that God himself rescued his people Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When we look at the book of Job, we see that God's mighty hand tested his servant Job. When we look at the prophets, we see that God's mighty hand chastens his people. So we understand that because of all of this, we ought to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. It's not that God will never exalt his saints. It's just that it's his timing and not our timing. Peter has talked to us about the time of Christ's return throughout this letter. We do not know when, but we know there is a day when Christ will return. And at that time, at the proper time, he will exalt you. Notice that it says he and not we. We live in a world that wants to uh, encourage us all the time to pressure us to exalt ourselves. If you want to get ahead in business, you need to exalt yourself. You need to let people know why your business is better than everybody else's and why you need to be hired for this job and not why that person needs to be hired for that job. And we want to uh, exalt our loved ones. We want to tell people how wonderful we think they are. And so we have to tell people how great our spouse is and how great our children are and even how great our grandchildren are. And that's a wonderful thing. But we feel this pressure all the time uh, to do that. And let's be honest, if we don't post about it on Facebook, did it really even happen? I mean, we have to tell the world about how wonderful everything is that we do and that our family does. And so we're, we're just kind of in this mindset that we want to exalt ourselves. But it's kind of understandable. We come from a long line of people who exalt themselves. If you look at our forefathers and our ancestors all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, they said, come, let us gather together and let us make a name for ourselves. And how did they want to do that? They wanted to build a tower that reached all the way up into the heavens. And we know what happened then. The mighty hand of God scattered them across the face of the earth. So in Genesis 11, our people, our family, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. But in Genesis 12, God spoke to one man, a man named Abram, and said, I will make a name for you. So the choice is the same for us today. Will we seek to exalt ourselves or will we let God exalt us in due time at the proper time? This is the choice that we all have. Carl Henry was an evangelical theologian in the 20th century. He was a brilliant man. Uh, even if you didn't agree with everything he had to say, you had to take him seriously. And he lived long enough to uh, outlive many challengers. And so uh, he had a lot to be proud of, but he was a very humble man. And so someone asked him one time in an interview, how do you stay so humble after living for so long? And he said, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? How can anyone be arrogant when we stand beside the cross of Jesus Christ? Christ is the one who has saved us. Christ is the one who makes the difference in our lives. So we ought to have this attitude in us that was also in Christ Jesus, who took on the form of a servant. As Terry read for us earlier, we ought to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You say, okay, pastor, I agree. We need to do it. But how? 
Look at verse 7. By casting all your anxieties, by casting all your cares on him. This word casting simply means to, to throw upon. It's the picture of taking a saddle blanket and throwing it on the back of a horse. Take all the cares that you have, take them off your back and throw them on the back of our Savior. It's the picture of a net that Peter would use as a fisherman. He did not cast a rod and reel. He cast a great net that had weights on it that would sink down into the ocean and wrap itself around a big catch of fish. And that's how they would haul in the fish for the day. We're to take that net of sins that so easily beset us, those cares that weigh us down, and we're to cast them onto our Heavenly Father. Why? Because He cares for us. He really, truly cares for us. We know this is true, but sometimes we doubt it. Sometimes we live our lives as if we don't actually believe that God cares for us. You see, when we refuse to cast our cares on the Lord, we're actually showing our pride. When we say, you know, God, I know that you have the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that you have all power. You have all authority. I know that you can take care of my problem, but I just can't let it go. Father, I've just got to hold on to it just a little bit longer. We're actually saying to God in our pride that we can't trust him with our cares. If we can trust God with our cares, we can leave them with him knowing that he is big enough. He is able. He can resolve all of it. But when we say, no, I'm going to hang on to it, we're actually showing our pride. Horatius Bonar was a a songwriter, a hymn writer in the 1800s, and he wrote songs for children. And this is a song that he, he wrote for children called, I Lay My Sins on Jesus. And the second verse says, I lay my wants on Jesus, because all fullness dwells in him. He heals all my diseases. He doth my soul redeem. I lay my griefs on Jesus, my burdens and my cares. He from them all releases. He all my sorrows shares. This is a picture of what it looks like to cast our cares on our Lord. It doesn't say just cast some of them. It says cast all of them. Every care that we have, we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God by casting all of our anxieties on him because he really does care for you and for me. The second command that Peter gives us in this passage is found in verse eight. We're told to be watchful. He says, beginning in verse eight, be sober minded, be watchful. We've seen those words before, to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled, to be clear-minded, to think rightly about things as they really are, not necessarily as our emotions tell us that they are, but as we see things as God sees things, we're to be clear-minded, we're to be watchful. Why does Peter tell us that? Well, like so many other things we've seen in this letter, there was a time when Peter was given this command and he failed. The night before our Lord's crucifixion, the night that we keep going back to in this study of 1 Peter because it shaped Peter's life and it shaped uh, the course of human history and it shapes how we understand God's word. The night before our Lord's crucifixion, Jesus took his disciples and he told them, look, you stay over here and watch and pray. And Jesus said, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray. And Jesus prayed and he poured out his heart to his heavenly father and said, Father, if there be any other way, 
Would you make it possible? But not your will, Father, but mine. And when Jesus returned to the disciples, they were asleep. Now, we want to be hard on them, but the scriptures tell us that they were burdened down with sorrow. They didn't know what else to do except to cry and go to sleep. But our Lord had told them to watch and pray. And now these decades later, Peter is giving us the same message to be watchful, watch and pray. Why does he tell us to do this? Because we have an adversary, the devil, and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice that it's a personal adversary. It doesn't say the adversary. It says your adversary and your adversary and your adversary. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is clarifying. This is helpful. Because sometimes we live our life not knowing who our adversary really is. We might think that it's our next door neighbor. If they just continually do things to annoy us, we think, goodness gracious, they are my enemy, my adversary. Perhaps it's a coworker or a boss at work. There's someone that's just always grating on your nerves and you think this person is my adversary. Perhaps it's that anonymous person you just keep arguing with on social media. You think, if I could just really straighten them out. They would understand because they are my adversary. But no, God tells us in his word that we do have an adversary, the devil. The devil, we think of being his name. It's actually a word that describes what he does. It means slanderer. He slanders us. And we see that here in this verse because he is our adversary, which is a picture of a lawyer, a prosecutor. Standing before our Heavenly Father, Satan is continually slandering us. He's accusing us of all sorts of things. We see that in the book of Job when Satan walked into the throne room of heaven and he said, I've been going to and fro about the earth. That sounds a whole lot like the devil prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, we have an adversary. We have an accuser who will come and he will whisper to you in the darkness of night. He will remind you of your sins. He will whisper to God, this one is not worthy. This one has failed you. This one is no good. But even as much as we have an adversary before the Father, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who stands at our defense and he says, Father, this one is mine. I've covered him with my blood. This one has been clothed in my righteousness. And he silences our adversary. He silences our accuser. But we need to be sober minded. We need to be watchful. We need to be on guard, understanding that this is what's happening. That our adversary, the devil, prowls around. He goes around with a howling of hunger. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When we think about a lion... Most often we think about an animal at the zoo or perhaps an animal that we've seen on National Geographic. Or if you've been really blessed and you've been able to actually go to Africa and see the lion in its natural habitat. But in general, we think of a lion as something to observe, not something that will oppose us. You see, when we uh, read this letter, that's what we think of. But these people who received this letter, they knew that it was very possible that they one day would be fed to the lions. 
They knew that it was possible that this could be the instrument of their death. Perhaps they had heard of what was happening in Rome, that Nero was going and he was offering Christians before lions, that he was sacrificing people, he was sacrificing Christians to lions. And so perhaps those uh, brothers and sisters there in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia, perhaps they had heard about what was happening in Rome and they wondered, will this be our end too? Is this what's going to happen to us? Will we be devoured by a roaring lion? The reality was very real for them. The fear was very real for them. So we need to take that uh, to heart as we read these verses. When we look at the work of Satan in the scriptures, we see that he is often described as a serpent or a dragon. When we think of a lion in the Bible, it's not Satan that we think of. We generally think of the lion of the tribe of Judah who has overcome. He has conquered. But I think it's appropriate that Peter describes Satan here as a roaring lion. One, because of his activity, as we've already seen. But also because he's the great imposter. He's the great deceiver. He's the one who's always attempting to duplicate the work of the true lion. And yet he's not the lion of Judah. So we need to avoid falling into one of two ditches when it comes to thinking about the devil. Far too many people fall into one of two ditches when they think about Satan. They either fall into the ditch of denial or they fall into the ditch of fascination. Far too many people think, oh no, we live in the year 2021. We have electric cars. We have iPhones. We have all this wonderful technology. How do you expect me to believe in a real devil? And other people, on the other hand, would say, oh, I'm really interested in the devil. In fact, I'm going to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out all of what I can learn about the occult and about demons and about the devil. And people fall into one of those two ditches. Friends, we should never underestimate Satan, but we should never overestimate Satan either. Satan is not God. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipowerful. He is limited. He can only be in one place at one time, and he has a limited amount of power. Now, don't misunderstand me. He's smarter than all of us. He's been around a long time, thousands of years, practicing his deceit. But he's still far, far inferior to our great God. And so we don't need to overestimate Satan, but we don't need to underestimate him either. Again, the night before our Lord's crucifixion, Peter underestimated the work of Satan. You see, Jesus told the disciples, he told the twelve that one of them was going to deny him. One of him of the twelve was going to betray our Lord. And Peter, when he heard this, said, no, never. It won't be me. It may be one of these, but it won't be me, Lord. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan would sift you. Simon, you're like a piece of cake to Satan. He could devour you in one bite. But I've prayed for you, Simon, and I know that even after you've denied me, after you're restored, comfort your brethren, strengthen your brethren. And so as we read the scriptures, we understand that Peter was not the one to betray our Lord, but he did deny our Lord. And we've already looked at how the Lord restored him. And so for the rest of Peter's life, until his dying breath, his goal was to strengthen the brethren. And that's what he's doing here is reminding us to be watchful. But thirdly, we're also to be firm. Verses 9 through 11. 
Beginning in verse 9, it says, Resist him firm in your faith. What are we supposed to do if this adversary is prowling around? We're to resist him. That's an active word. You're not going to passively resist the devil. You're not just going to accidentally stand firm upon the word of God. It takes intention. We're to stand firm in our faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're to know what we believe and why we believe it. We're to defeat Satan with the armor of God and the word of God. Resist him firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Again, if Peter is writing from Rome, then he sees firsthand the persecution and the hostility that they're experiencing in Rome. But there were little pockets of persecution, little pockets of hostility all across the Roman Empire. And there would come a day when the entire Roman Empire would oppose Christianity, when it would persecute Christianity. But that day had not yet come. But even as these brothers and sisters in these churches that received this letter, even as they were beginning to experience that hostility and that persecution, they needed to take courage and be reminded that their brothers and sisters across the world were also experiencing the same kinds of suffering. You know, the news cycle has already moved past what's happened in Afghanistan. And I'm not here to speak about it as a political event, but I want to remind us that we have brothers and sisters who daily are taking their lives in their hands as they're seeking to worship our God there in Afghanistan. But it's not just there. It's in China. It's in Nigeria. In fact, it's in every country on the face of the earth. We have brothers, brothers and sisters who are enduring the same kinds of suffering. We need to know about it so we can pray about it. But sometimes we approach that as if we're the ones that have the upper hand. We take pity upon them, but they take pity upon us because they understand the nearness of God in a way that we don't. They're understanding how God sustains them through their suffering in ways that we typically don't. That's the reason why I like to study church history, not just because I like history in general, but because I can take courage from looking at how faithful men and women who have gone before us have endured suffering. We need to be reminded of this, that there are the same kinds of suffering being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And then Peter summarizes his entire letter here in verse 10. He says, after you have suffered a little while, a little while. We remember that phrase all the way back from chapter one, that you may suffer here for a little while. And we may think, oh my goodness, pastor, I've suffered with this, uh, de- this terrible disease for, um, for my whole life, this debilitating disease for decades. We may think that, isn't it time for there to be some relief. But God says your suffering has an expiration date. It will come to an end. It may be in this life. It may be at the moment of death. But our suffering is only for a little while. Because the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. You see here in this phrase, those three big ideas we've been looking at throughout the book, suffering and sojourning, and we're saved. He says, after you have suffered a little while, 
a little while reminding us that we are sojourners here on this earth. This world is not our home. After a little while, the God of all grace who has called us, who has saved us. Notice what Peter ends on. He ends on our salvation. He began with our salvation and he ends on our salvation. We need to be aware of our suffering, but we need to focus on the God who has saved us. And what is that God, the God of all grace, going to do? He has called us to his eternal glory in Christ and he himself. It doesn't say he might. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say possibly. It says God will himself. He's not passing it off to somebody else. God himself will restore us. It's the word for mending. It's the same word for what Peter would have done with his nets. As a fisherman, he would have mended his nets. So you may get banged up in this life. You may get scratched up and scuffed up. You may have cuts and bruises from the sufferings in this life. But God himself will mend you. He will restore you. He will heal you. He will confirm and strengthen and establish you. It's easy to get discouraged when we think about this roaring lion. But when we think about the true lion, the real lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that strengthens us. That helps us to walk a little straighter. That helps us to face whatever days before us because of what Jesus Christ has done. And God himself will establish us. He sets us on his firm foundation. This is what our great God and Savior has done for us. So how can we not do the same thing that Peter does in verse 11, but to erupt in doxology, erupt in praise to our God? To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God who has saved us, the God who has bought us at a price, the God who is putting all things under his feet. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. And no matter what we endure in this life, even as we suffer, even as we sojourn, we have been saved. And so to him be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter ends this letter in the same way that he began with grace. It's all of God's grace. He began in chapter one. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us by his grace. And he ends focusing on the God of all grace. If you're here this morning and you recognize, wow, I need to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I need to cast my cares upon him. I need to be watchful. I need to be firm in my faith. Would you turn to the God of all grace, knowing that he will strengthen and establish and confirm you and restore you? But if you're here and you recognize that you have never received God's grace, you've never trusted him for salvation, then I would plead with you to repent of your sins today. Trust Jesus Christ today. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to our God in prayer.